Gresham College presents Architectural Capricci by William Palin, Assistant Curator of Sir John Soames Museum. Architecture is enwrapped in a cloud of darkness. To unveil its power in true splendour ought to be the aim of the artist. These are the words of Joseph Michael Gandhi, perhaps the greatest architectural artist this country has ever produced. Although he is still too little known, many of you will have admired his remarkable watercolours at Sir John Soane's Museum, of which this um, imaginary view of a Grecian temple complex is one. Indeed, it was these beguiling and beautiful works that first set me thinking seriously about architectural fantasy in art. This lecture is a result of these meditations, a foray, if you like, into this rich and compelling subject. Our journey will take us into strange worlds of the fevered imagination, past dark ruins, across the deserted piazzas of unbuildable cities. through the terrifying landscapes of the religious allegorist. Over the mad assemblages of the architect teacher. And into the celebratory compendia of the building connoisseur. As you can see from these few examples, Architectural visions in art spring from many sources and contain various meanings. They can embody dreams and ambitions or signify folly and vanity. They can be allegorical, educational, comical, theatrical, or any of these things together. What unites them, however, is the way in which they harness the emotional power of the architectural form. To be strictly accurate, the term capricci, as used in the title of this talk, only covers a particular genre in the wider tradition of architectural renderings in art. The term capricci came into use in the 18th century to describe the fantasy assemblages of classical antiquity by artists such as Piranesi and Panini. In this type of view, accurate representations of ancient buildings are arranged capriciously to make a pleasing medley rather than a record of fact. And here's an example of um, uh, a capriccio by Panini showing the monuments of Rome gathered together. You can see the Colosseum in the background, the uh, Trajan's Column here, and various other um, important works of art to be found in Rome at that time. Piranesi, the supreme exponent of topographical engraving, was particularly adept at such visionary compositions. This plate, the frontispiece of Le Antichita Romane, 
1756 shows the astonishing fertility of his imagination. I love this uh, plate. You can see that Piranesi has gathered together a mountain of architectural fragments, uh, sculptural fragments, busts, everything he can find, piled them up um, and placed them by the side of a Roman road. You can see there's some small figures here walking past this mad fantasy. And uh, Piranesi ran a thriving workshop in Rome as well as churning out these, these amazing um, etchings. And the workshop uh, really recycled antique fragments. So the idea was you could go to Piranesi with a sort of piece of broken classical sculpture and he would turn it into something nice. And there are some very good examples in Sir John Soane's museum particularly of these little cinnery urns, these ash urns. If you go to the dome area in the museum, you'll see many of these dotted around. And um, uh, quite a number have these new sort of Pyrenaean additions, new lids and little bits sort of stuck on. You must have had tremendous fun. One of the Soane Museum's great treasures is this virtuoso drawing by Piranesi made for the architect Robert Adam when he visited the Italian master in Rome in the 1760s. Adam, of course, had uh, the largest and most successful architectural practice in this country in the 18th century, responsible for such great houses as Sarn House, Kedleston, and, of course, for major London developments such as Portland Place and the now-destroyed uh, Adelphi. Um, this drawing reveals a looseness and freedom that must have astounded the young Scottish architect who had been trained um, himself in the tight, controlled drawing style that was the academic tradition of the time. Adam later wrote home describing Piranesi's <laughs> amazing and ingenious fancies which are the greatest fund for inspiring and instilling invention in any lover of architecture. I can't emphasize what an amazing thing this is. Um, Piranesi has just got, first of all, a piece of red chalk and just gone um, and then uh, added the ink on top. And for someone like um, Adam, this was just completely not the way to do things, but it's a wonderful, exuberant, um, uh, beautiful thing. Um, I don't know if any of you, perhaps I'm showing my age, but um, there used to be a program called Take Heart featuring Tony Hart on children's television. And he used to start off these things and you weren't quite sure what they were going to be. And then these amazing things would sort of transpire at the end. Well, I like to think of this sort of Tony Hart on acid, maybe. Um, <laughs> Piranesi's work was to prove massively influential on the development of European neoclassicism. It taught young architects, such as Adam, to respond imaginatively to antiquity and not to rely entirely on measuring and copying existing buildings. Indeed, this fantasy uh, design for a palace was made by Robert Adam when he was in Rome and shows a direct and immediate influence of his Italian mentor, um, this drawing was featured in a recent exhibition on Adam called Bob, Bob the Builder. <laughs> was it called Bob the Builder? Um, 
Bob the Roman, I beg your pardon. Uh, it was Adam's nickname when he was in Rome, was Bob the Roman. Um, thank you for correcting me there. Um, the drawing is, I think it's something like um, uh, six or seven feet long. This is just the right-hand section of it. And you can see immediately the um, influence of Piranesi. Um, Adam has gathered together some real sort of monuments, such as Trajan's Column here or something very like it, and then just sort of embellished it in this mad um, wedding cake style. My interest in Capricci began with this astonishing watercolour. It hangs behind the vast movable planes on the south side of the picture room at Sir John Soane's Museum. The artist is Joseph Gandhi, and the buildings it shows are by the architect John Soane, whose house and collection, as Barbara said earlier, um, became a public museum after his death in 1837. This watercolour, painted in 1815, shows over a hundred of the architect's works to date, arranged as models and drawings in a vast gallery surmounted by a shallow domed ceiling, one of Soane's um, architectural signatures. Um, incidentally, Soane employed Gandhi as his architectural artist from about 1796. He recognised straight away um, how Gandhi, how useful Gandhi could be in sort of marketing his work. And Gandhi produced these fantasy views. He also produced views of Soane's built work. They were hung at the Royal Academy in the exhibitions, the annual exhibitions there, to draw attention to Soane's work, to advertise it, and to really help shape his self-image. And we have a whole pile of things here. On the top of the pile, of course, Soane's great masterpiece, the Bank of England. Soane spent 45 years as architect of the bank. Um, he was to work on it for another 20 years after this watercolour was produced. Also, we have the only other major public work by Soane that survives, Dulwich Picture Gallery. We have um, various country house projects, including Tiringham. And we also have the facade of the Soane Museum as originally built by Soane and uh, the tomb he designed for his wife when she died in 1815 which can be found in St Pancras Churchyard and famously inspired Sir Giles Gilbert Scott to design the London Red Telephone Box. But we'll move on. In the foreground is a tiny figure seated at a desk. He is surrounded by architectural plans and is clutching a pair of dividers. This is sown, of course, dwarfed in this startling composition by the fruits of his own imagination. It is a thrilling image, and although since much emulated, it was at the time unique in English architecture. Soane's friend, the critic and collector John Britton, commented after he saw the work that it was, I quote, a very interesting drawing. The idea of bringing together in an abridged form the principal features of the various works of a single architect. It is both ingenious and fascinating. I love the fact that even on the desk we have a miniature model of the Bank of England. 
sort of a bird's eye view perched on the edge of the table. Soane was both an architect and collector. He was also a man obsessed with his own legacy. This image is an attempt to assert his professional identity, his passion for collecting, and his craving for immortality. Again, as Barbara mentioned earlier on, Soane was disappointed by his two sons. Um, they didn't follow him to the architectural profession. So from about this time, 1815, he poured all his emotions into creating this amazing house and collection on Lincoln's in Fields, which he decided he would pass on to the nation as a public museum to inspire future generations of artists and architects. But it was also importantly intended to be a memorial for himself. And as you walk around the museum, you're constantly reminded of Soane, either by his works in watercolour form, in model form, or by his portrait or bust. Soane is very much master of this collection. This may have been the first time an English architect had employed such a conceit, but it follows an established tradition in European art. Here, for example, is the Flemish masterpiece of unknown authorship, Connoisseurs in a Room Hung with Pictures, of 1620. It shows the artistic treasures of prosperous Antwerp gathered together in a single imaginary space. And you can see that the connoisseurs are... Um, examining the works and uh, not just the paintings but there are prints and gems and little uh, figurines, sculptural figurines on the table here. A hundred years later, G.P. Panini uh, was producing his own versions. This is a celebrated Capriccio of the Treasures of Rome painted in 1755 and again, we have all the major Roman monuments in the city uh, represented in this imaginary gallery. Um, huge works of art propped against the wall. And again, connoisseurs having a good look and enjoying all these amazing things. Oh, sorry, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, Panini, who died in 1765 produced fancy groupings of the monuments of Roman antiquity which allowed the contemporary viewer to taste something of the grandeur and romance of the real buildings. Such renditions were hugely important in whetting the appetite and shaping the expectations of the grand tourist. And also, of course, in providing an all-in-one souvenir of the greatest attractions to be found in the cradle of civilization. Um, now, I may be making a frivolous comparison, but it strikes me that those postcards you buy on holiday showing multiple views of that particular place fulfill some of the same function today. And I found a very low-grade uh, uh, Capriccio, um, which I bought in the Hayward Gallery bookshop last week, which I love. <laughs> London, a shopper's paradise. <laughs> and that's the other one I like. And finally, my favourite, Bank Holiday Britain. <laughs> oh, 
Aren't, <coughs> aren't those scenes familiar? Anyway. Um, Panini's Capricci emerged from a new tradition of urban landscape painting in Italy, characterized by breathtaking precision and clarity. Piranesi belongs to this movement, and so does Canaletto. Aha, I hear you say, but Canaletto's views are real. Well, this is not strictly the case. In this Venetian view, um, the Riva Daily uh, uh, Schiavoni, which hangs in the Seine Museum, marvellous painting. Um, the artist has rearranged the curve of the Grand Canal, changed the angles of the buildings, and played with the perspective. Canaletto is said to have known exactly how to take a great city to pieces and make a new sense of it. It is no coincidence that Canaletto, like Piranesi, was trained as a theatrical designer. Um, this idea of manipulating perspective, presenting a building which looks almost truer than the real building, is something very important to grasp when we discuss Capricci, because Gandhi, of course, does exactly the same thing. Um, you know, if you try and match a Gandhi watercolour of a stone building to the real building, it's always rather disappointing. Um, Gandhi employs this uh, incredibly romantic uh, manipulation of uh, perspective and light effects. And, of course, Canaletto does exactly the same thing. This dramatic view of the demolition of the Kreuzkirk in Dresden, 1765, is by Canaletto's nephew, Bellotto, confusingly known as Canaletto when painting abroad. Um, I just had to show you this image because I just came across something absolutely wonderful. Um, the story is that the uh, city authorities in Dresden decided they wanted to build, rebuild the church, build a new church, so they put out the tender the demolition contract. Um, and the contract, they, the tenders came back, all very expensive, but one was just you know, ridiculously small. And... Um, uh, they agreed to take on the particular um, uh, gentleman in question, and he said that he would demolish the entire church, just him and a couple of friends. <laughs> and what he had done, the, he, the key, the secret to this uh, amazing job, was he, had, he devised this amazing ladder. You can just see it there, which is just a sort of um, very simple um, rope ladder, which he was able to string very quickly and easily to cover large heights, clamber up to the top and just sort of knock the, the rubble down. And uh, it did the trick. It was in the Netherlands, however, that the cityscape was originated, with painters such as Jan van Hayden producing meticulous architectural landscapes. These views reflected the civic amity and national pride of prosperous Dutch cities such as Amsterdam and Leiden. Um, this view actually is a, is a fantasy. It's called an architectural fantasy. Um, it was painted by Van Hayden in about 1665. And as you can see, he gathers together uh, classical buildings such as this with sort of Gothic uh, structures which would have been more familiar in, um, in uh, Northern Europe at that point. Here we have a fortified tower with a garden on top, some figures here to give scale to the buildings, some piles of stone, 
all the things you'd expect to find in a good architectural fantasy. Capricious views of architecture can be traced back to antiquity. They can be found in Roman decorative wall painting as early as 11 BC. Uh, some of the most celebrated examples were discovered at the villa of Agrippa Posthumus at Bosco uh, Treacase. Um, the fashion for architectural vignettes often employing perspective trickery, reached its zenith, however, in the first century BC. This is a coloured engraving of a mural decoration discovered during excavations on a classical villa in the grounds of the Villa Negroni in Rome in 1765. The discovery caused a sensation, and parts of the frescoes were actually purchased by the Bishop of Derry um, for installation at Downhill House in Ireland. Um, Soane was travelling in Europe with the Bishop of Derry at this point. Um, Soane was on his own grand tour. And um, one can't underestimate the influence of these um, frescoes because uh, when they were uh, drawn and these coloured engravings were produced and circulated, people began to realise that antiquity was not exactly as they thought it was. It was coloured, it was vibrant, and indeed, Soane um, took the rich colouring and layering of the elements in uh, these particular engravings. He's got a whole set of these. They hang in the museum as inspiration in the creation of his famous library dining room at his museum. We have the Pompeian red colour reproduced and also these sort of strange hanging canopies, this layering that Soane, I believe, takes from those uh, sort of trompe l'oeil-esque Roman frescoes. Indeed, as I will discuss, discuss, discuss later, the entire Soane Museum is crammed full of ideas, motifs and memories and is a sort of built capricci, a flight of architectural fantasy with the, uh, with the career, travels, teachings of John Soane all distilled into one composition. And this is just an example of one of the many, many uh, drawings we have showing the Soane Museum in various ways. And this is a cross-section taken um, uh, across the back of the museum, and you can see the complexity of the spaces and how it's just brimming full of objects um, sculpture elements, paintings, you know, a bit like one of those sort of Panini gallery views. And I think Soane was trying to emulate those that type of creation. Until the Renaissance, European writers and artists perceived the monumental remains of antiquity variously as pagan excrescences symbolizing pride and folly or powerful reminders of the mutability of man's works. One extraordinary meditation on this theme from these aisles um, is an Anglo-Saxon poem from the 9th century called The Ruin, um, believed to have been a meditation on uh, vanishing Roman antiquity in Britain at this time. i just read a couple of verses. The city buildings fell apart. 
The works of giants crumble, tumbled are the towers, ruined are the roofs, and broken the barred gate. Frost in the plaster, all the ceilings gape, torn and collapsed and eaten up by age. Resolute masons skilled in rounded building wondrously linked the framework with iron bonds. The public halls were bright with lofty gables, bathhouses many, great the cheerful noise, and many mead halls filled with human pleasures. Till mighty fate brought change upon it all, slaughter was widespread, pestilence was rife, and death took all those valiant men away. The martial halls became deserted places. The cities crumbled, its repairers fell, its armies to the earth. And so these halls are empty, and this red curved roof now sheds its tiles. And I've just taken uh, as an illustration to this um, two more Gandhi watercolours from the Soane Museum. This one celebrated view of the Bank of England as it might look like in a thousand years' time. The Bank of England <laughs> as a ruin. Um, amazing painting. Um, what's Soane doing here? Well, of course, he's making a conscious link between his own work and the achievements of the classical builders, against whom he was measuring himself for his entire career. It also shows the complexity of the planning of the bank and how um, robust the structure of the bank was. Soane used very little timber. He used brick and stone and terracotta tiles for the dome ceilings. Um, so it was a strong, fireproof building. He was very proud of that. It's another view of the rotunda at the bank as a ruin. And of course, the great tragedy was that these visions would become reality in the 1920s when Stone's bank was demolished. And all that remains of Stone's original bank is the curtain wall that surrounds the site. Still, we must move on. With the birth of the Renaissance, the idea of the city and of architecture in general began once again to assume an important position in the imagination of artists. This fresco from the Palazzo Publico in Siena, entitled Good Government in the City, was painted by Ambrogio Lorenzetti in the 1330s. It shows the ideal of the harmonious, prosperous Renaissance city operating smoothly on every level. It's civic, mercantile and religious health clear for all to see. And the backdrop, an impressive cityscape. The fine architecture, a physical manifestation of this prosperity and security. A century later, in three famous painted panels commissioned by Federico de Montefeltro, the Duke of Urbino, um, the landscape, the architectural landscape ceased to be the backdrop and was brought to the fore to become the sole subject of the painting. Um, this one you're looking at hangs in the Ducal Palace still in Urbino. There's another uh, example in uh, the Walters Art Gallery in Baltimore. These are two details from that, and one which I don't have, which is in uh, the State Museum in Berlin. Montefeltro was one of a new generation of patrons tutored, tutored by humanists, such as Leon Battista Alberti, 
Alberti, born in 1404, was the first great theorist of humanist ideals and had a particular interest in architecture, writing his own treatise in ten books based on the only surviving architectural treatise from antiquity um, by Vitruvius. The ideas proposed by Alberti and other humanist scholars are reflected in these ideal cityscapes populated by noble structures based on Roman ideals. They were painted, perhaps, and we don't really know this is, this is the case, but we can speculate, to keep such visions of the architecture of humanism lastingly before the eyes of concerned contemporaries. These are really haunting um, images. And um, if any of you have a chance to go to Urbino, do visit the Ducal Palace and do look at that first panel um, of the ideal city, mesmerizing. Humanistic study heralded not only a new interest, but also a new accuracy in the depiction of architecture in Renaissance art. Here, Botticelli's Adoration of the Kings takes place among the ruins of a classical temple, signifying the supplanting of pagan religion by the Christian church. And the miracles of San Zenobius are performed here before a meticulously rendered backdrop of the Renaissance city. The artist clearly taking delight over the rendering of the architectural elements and the delineation of the perspective views. In Crivelli's masterpiece, The Annunciation with, with Saint Amidius, the perspectival construction of the architectural setting together with the gloriously rendered and embellished classical structures, reflect a deep pride in the urban landscape and a, and a raising of architecture almost to a celestial plane. This painting, of course, hangs in the National Gallery. Um, and, um, again, you have to see the real thing. Incredibly beautiful. The actual building process is celebrated in this idealized view of the construction of a great palace. This painting from the 1520s is by Piero de Cosimo. And here we have um, a grand palace being erected. We have the various trades employed, the masons, the carpenters. Statues are being hoisted up onto the parapet here. It's a celebration of the ingenuity and skill of, of, um, of, you know, of the Renaissance builder. Contrast this with Jan Bruegel's The Eldest Adoration of the Kings. Here, the Protestant tradition has moved us towards a perceived reality of setting far from the classical ideas of Botticelli and Crivelli. And here, Joachim Patenier blends fantasy landscape with simple, unidealized architecture, highlighting, in this case, St. Jerome's isolation. There he is. And there's a little sort of simple 
chapel in this incredibly um, uh, inventive and powerful um, imaginary landscape. Earlier in the 16th century, painters such as Hieronymus Bosch and Peter Bruegel also produced architectural landscapes as meditations on biblical or moral themes. The coded moral and religious messages contained in Bosch's strange worlds are mostly indecipherable to the modern observer. We are left merely to marvel at his imagination. In this central panel of the triptych, the Garden of Earthly Delights in the Prado, um, architecture is displaced by strange vegetable and natural forms. All this kind of stuff. The stuff of science fiction. In Peter Bruegel's the, <laughs> the Tower of Babel, however, the story is clear. We all know the story of the Tower of Babel. What is interesting about this painting is that it is the huge doomed tower rather than the quarrels and chaos surrounding it, its construction that appears to absorb the painter's energies. It is a painstaking architectural rendition and must surely have been drawn from long observation and study of real building. And see that the, the vaulting, you know, they've got to what, five stories, it's clearly not going to go very far. And uh, there are some communication issues arising over here. Um, I have a print of this hanging above my bed, so I'm very fond of it. When the Italian Renaissance eventually reached Northern Europe in the 16th century, there was one homegrown artist, painter, engraver whose influence was to be profound. Very little is known about Jan or Hans Vredemund de Vries. He trained as a painter, but also turned his skills to architectural engraving. His work reflects the artistic cross-currents of the time, mixing northern and southern elements. Gothic, Renaissance, Baroque and Mannerism are represented in powerful combination. And here we have uh, a painting by de Vries, which is in the Pushkin Museum in Moscow, um, King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And you can see we have sort of um, classical buildings that you, know, you would have seen in Venice or Florence. We have sort of strange northern gothic tower so i don't know what this is this is just a sort of strange Vriesian invention and then these wonderful views these vistas that take you off into the distance take your imagination beyond the uh, the, the first plane Vries produced dozens of publications on architectural topics these images are from his last and greatest work perspective which was published in London in 1604-5. His engravings opened new avenues of architectural invention and representation, and his books have been described as fantasies and textbooks, dreams and pattern books for apprentices, avant-garde messages and popular pictures. Fifty years later, the French classicists Poussin and Claude Lorraine were painting the Roman landscape through the lens of antiquity. 
Here in seaport with the embarkation of the Queen of Sheba of 1648 in the National Gallery, of course, Claude brings noble, antique and modern buildings, building types together to create a biblical setting of epic character before flooding the scene with brilliant Mediterranean sunlight. When I was brought to the National Gallery as a child, I always went to this painting. It was my favourite painting in the National Gallery, and I think probably still is. It's completely transporting. So we've looked at some of the predecessors to Gandhi's watercolours, um, but what of the successors? This is the penultimate painting in a series of five by Thomas Cole, which follows the rise and fall of a classically inspired civilization. The other paintings in the series are the savage state, the pastoral state, consummation, where everything's wonderful and there's a wonderful architectural scene, and desolation, which comes after uh, this, which is destruction. Cole was born in Bolton, Lancashire, but emigrated to America at the age of 18, where he became one of the most important American landscape painters of his generation. Visits to the galleries of Europe in 1831-2 filled his head with lofty romantic themes, um, which were then reflected in the epic scope of this series and his other great work, The Voyage of Life. Cole's works also echo the prevailing currents of, rom of the Romantic movement and its fascination with the rise and fall of nations and the destruction of tyranny. Themes echoed, of course, in uh, Shelley's celebrated sonnet, Ozymandias. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lips and sneer of cold command tell that its sculpture well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And here we have an inscription on the pedestal of this uh, um, statue, and it actually says, I think, uh, coal. 1836, so the artist has replaced the Ozymandias uh, uh, inscription in his own work. I think it is fair to say that architects at this time were generally more concerned with reconstruction than destruction. In this Gandhi-inspired hypnotic vision of 1836, the English architect and royal academician C.R. Cockrell assembles 4,000 years of architectural history within the shadow of the pyramids at Giza. 
Cockerell was Professor of Architecture from 1839 to 59, and this image is most likely a visual counterpart to his unpublished lectures. Cockerell, like Soane, held a deep conviction that intelligent study of the past was the only certain path to creativity in the present. Um, there was a little exhibition at the Royal Academy recently, I don't know whether it's still on, um, about this particular work, and you can see it in the flesh, go right up to it, and um, there's a key to this that you can get from the Royal Academy, and nearly all the buildings have been identified, and I'm pleased to say that an intern at the Soane Museum, who's sitting over there, identified one of the unidentified buildings. Um, which one was it, Jeremy? Oh, no, okay, well, we'll be quiet about that. Um, well, you can see the general idea. We have St. Peter's, St. Paul's Cathedral, um, but at the front, Egypt, ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and then the other buildings, which Cockrell believed to be the iconic or important buildings of the time. In Prussia, the prodigiously talented Karl Friedrich Schinkel um, was busy rebuilding Berlin as one of the great neoclassical cities of Europe. Schinkel was also a painter, and this mesmerizing work, view in the prime of the Hellenic Epoch, reflects a fascination, a fascination and admiration for the miraculous builders of antiquity at a period when art was at its zenith. Um, in two years' time, we're having an exhibition at the Soane Museum on Schinkel, looking at the tour that he took to uh, Britain at the beginning of the 19th century, and he came to the Soane Museum, and he hated it. He could not understand this crazy Englishman piling up all this stuff. Um, this was Schinkel's sort of idea of, of beauty, harmonious, noble simplicity of the Grecian era, or epoch. In the 1860s, Sir Edward Poynter recreated Egypt on a grand scale in this painting, which hangs in the Guildhall Art Gallery. Poynter, like Schinkel, would have drawn on a growing body of archaeological information available at the time. Hundred years before this, of course, very little was known about or understood about ancient Egypt. Fritz Lang's Metropolis of 1927 remains a seminal cinematic vision of the city of the future. Lang's architectural muse was New York, and he described his emotions when seeing the city for the first time from a ship near Ellis Island. The building seemed to be a vertical veil, shimmering, almost weightless, a luxurious cloth hung from the dark sky to dazzle, distract, and hypnotize. At night, the city did not give the impression of being alive. It lived as illusions lived. I knew then that I had to make a film about all of these sensations. Lang communicated his vision to um, Eric uh, Kettlehut, who uh, produced the set designs for the films, of which this is one. 
Um, there's a whole other lecture to be given, of course, on cities of the future. I think there are probably actually many more representations of cities of the future now than there are of cities of the past. And, of course, um, I remember as a child borrowing my brother's copy of 2000 AD and looking at the mes captivating images of Mega City One with the tower blocks that were three miles high. Um, thanks to Norman Foster, we're, we're getting there. Another troubling urban landscape is shown in this hugely influential painting by Paolo de Chirico. Um, this is the Enigma of the Day, a paint, <laughs> painted in 1914, excuse me. De Chirico's images of the dream city were admired by Magritte, Dali, and Delvaux, and the dream city was to become a favorite subject of the surrealists. Here, the Chirico arranges half-remembered architectural forms in a virtually deserted landscape, cut with deep shadows. Its effect is curious, like a postcard from somewhere we all vaguely remember having visited long ago. In 20th century British art, the tradition of architectural fantasy was continued in some surprising and beautiful ways. Algernon Newton's haunting London street scenes have a strange power. Devoid of human beings, they assume the same surreal quality of the ideal cities of Urbino. Newton proves, I think, that even the most ordinary the most mundane architectural scene can trigger deep emotions. Felix Kelly achieves the same elegiac power by combining a sense of permanence and decay, of safety and of threat. Here is Normanton Church, of course, at Rutland Water, saved from uh, destruction in a man-made reservoir by being hoisted up on stone supports. And um, here, Kelly, of course, has um, created a, an imaginary landscape around it, the sky, the, the, the boat gliding by. Um, Kelly sort of specialised in painting buildings that looked like fantasies but weren't actually fantasies. So here we have the church floating on the surface of the reservoir. More conventional capricci were produced by Rex Whistler, whose murals at Place Neuid in Anglesey are perhaps the most famous of his architectural compositions. Um, again, you must see this if you haven't. Uh, Whistler having, you know, just obviously having fun. We have everything here. We have a sort of Venetian church, some London 18th century townhouses, some sort of Flemish townhouses, and a medieval castle in the background, just for good measure. And most recently, Carl Laubin's Capricci have shown the tradition to be as strong and as popular as ever. Laubin is perhaps the most worthy successor to Gandhi, and this painting, Hawksmoor, is a homage to the great English Baroque architect, um, including both his built and unbuilt works. I'm very interested in Hawksmoor for various reasons. Um, and um, I'm sure many of you can identify these buildings. The mausoleum at Castle Howard, 
um, the London churches, Christchurch, Spitalfields, St Anne, Limehouse, St George in the East, the Towers of All Souls College, Oxford, um, the spire or the, the peculiar tower based on the mausoleum of Halicarnassus at St George's Church, Bloomsbury, not far from here, undergoing a major restoration funded by the World Monument Fund at the moment. And um, one of the towers of Westminster Abbey, believed or not, designed by Hawksmoor. Hawksmoor's own architectural imagination drew from a detailed knowledge of architectural history. His own obituarist notes that he was skilled in the history of architecture and could give an exact account of all the famous buildings, both ancient and modern, in every part of the world, to which his excellent memory that never failed him to the very last greatly contributed. Hawksmoor never travelled. He knew all these buildings from... Uh, prints and engravings and published architectural treatises. And he recreated um, elements of these buildings from antiquity in his own work, blending them in this peculiar way. So one can imagine Hawksmoor's mind, imagination, being like a grand architectural capriccio, which he's sort of picking and choosing elements and blending them together. And this, I think, is a good point at which to return to Soane, with Gandhi's companion piece to the built works, that watercolour I showed earlier. This watercolour, produced three years later in 1818, is entitled Architectural Visions of Early Fancy in the Gay Morning of Youth and Dreams in the Evening of Life. It is a melancholy mix of the neoclassical dreams of Soane's student years and early career. We have, for example, his triumphal bridge. It was his design for a triumphal bridge that won him the gold medal when he was a student at the Royal Academy and won him, in turn, a scholarship from King George III to go on his tour of Italy. Um, it mixes these together with the later professional disappointments um, of his career. The contemplative mood deepened by the inclusion of the funeral procession of Nelson, which is winding up through the streets uh, up the hill of this Italian landscape to the left. Sorry, this isn't a very good detail, but it is there. This powerful work, is a meditation on the frustrated ambitions of the architect. There is no other profession in which the process of turning a conceived idea into reality is so enormously difficult. And so, like all fancy, the paper designs provide an outlet, an escape from the disappointments that spring from unfulfilled ambitions. Soane's own views, incidentally, on the lost opportunities for, for rebuilding London, <laughs> many of these designs he put forward to embellish London, um, were um, very, um, 
how, how would I put it? I better just quote you. He says, Why not erect a triumphal arch to make an entrance onto Hanover Square from Oxford Street and another at High Park Corner? See the French entrances to Paris. Would to God some of the entrances to this mighty metropolis were decorated with avenues of trees, with monuments, and, and the whole terminated with magnificent triumphal arches. Indeed, of these miserable lanes of human, in, sorry, instead, we have miserable lanes of human habitations, for they do not deserve the name of houses, or rather high brick walls with holes perforated for entry and exit. <laughs> Same was very disappointed in London, generally, and he thought he could rescue it, but he didn't win these commissions, or he won very few of them. And, of course, George IV's favourite architect was John Nash, who won the commission for Buckingham Palace, which Soane called outstandingly jobbish, whatever that means. Later in his life, with many of his architectural visions unrealised, Soane poured his emotions increasingly into his museum at Lincoln's Inn Fields, creating a built Capricci, crammed full of architectural ideas and literally brimming with casts, fragments and other examples of the art of architecture. The museum is a compendia, an encyclopedic construction inspired by the memories of Soane's time in Rome and the prints and paintings of Piranesi, Robert, Panini and others. Soane even created a Capricci-inspired architectural folly, which he called a pasticcio, which is a column of fragments which tell the story of architecture. Now, this has recently been re-erected in the same museum. It was taken down 100 years ago when it began to wobble alarmingly. And since then, um, the pieces have been recorded. And last year, it was put back together. And it's a magnificent... Uh, embellishment um, to the museum and, of course, you know, returning the museum to the state in which Soane left it. So you have this column with sort of a Roman plinth, a sort of Moorish capital, which has recently been identified as from the royal palace in Morocco. We have um, sort of Grecian or maybe another Roman elements here. The Tivoli capital from Soane's favourite classical building, the Tivoli, Temple of Vesta at Tivoli. And above it, there's a Norman capital. And then at the very top, of course, a Sonian capital. It's crowning architecture with his own work. Each room in the museum exhibits a different Sonian spatial effect and um, uh, a brilliant um, manipulation of light. And at times, it's as if he seems to be striving to match the picturesque and poetic renderings of his artist, Gandhi. This is a lovely view called the Dome at Night. And instead of the daylight pouring in, we have the artificial light from the basement spilling up over the casts and fragments. So this is a terrible photograph I took today. And the model room, hidden away on the second floor of the house, we hope to be open to the public, uh, certainly by 2007, resembles a realised version of the famous Gandhi watercolour. So, in many ways, 
the museum represents a sort of culmination in the tradition of architectural fantasy. It is a celebration of the power and fascination of the architectural form, a tradition that we have traced back uh, to, the more, to the mural painters of ancient Rome through the Renaissance, through the artists of the Grand Tour, through neoclassical dreamers, to the surrealists and beyond. I hope that I have dispersed at least some of that dark cloud which Gandhi claimed to have enwrapped architecture and revealed a few of the many beautiful examples of the enigmatic architectural fantasy. Thank you. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.